0: Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai, and you are listening to Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, where we spotlight MFP fellows and alumni and their pioneering work to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. We have so much to explore, so let's get started. Greetings, Pak, and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. Really looking forward to this conversation today. So let's start by introductions, if you could introduce yourself to our audience, by telling us who is Pak Chow.
1: I am Pak Chow. I currently attend the University of Pennsylvania for my Psychiatric Mental Health Nurse Practitioner um, degree, hopefully graduating soon. Um, I do have kind of a residency lined up, so I'm really excited to talk about that later as well. Just a little bit about me right now.
0: And to tell me a little bit more about your background, your family background, your childhood. I understand that you moved here to America with your family when you were really young. What was it like growing up as an, as an immigrant child in America?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Hong Kong. I moved over here. Because my parents were kind of afraid of the uh, communist takeover of Hong Kong as of recent times. It was kind of handed over to Britain to manage for about 100 years and then kind of handed back over. So my my dad actually grew up in uh, communist China. He's not really a fan of it. So we moved to South Jersey and I grew up there most of my life until college. But I was kind of the only English speaker in the household put a lot of pressure on me growing up. Uh, money was always tight. We lived with like all my aunts and uncles there too. So we had maybe like a good eight, nine, ten people in that house living off food food stamps. Um, my dad was our primary, I guess, breadwinner. He worked in the casino industry. And my mom, she had some serious depression when she got over here because the Chinese culture really focuses on family. And unfortunately, she didn't really get along with my dad's side of the family and she didn't really have a lot of support over here. So Uh, She didn't work. She just mostly stayed at home and took care of me and my siblings as well. So it was really important for me growing up to find a job that was going to be able to help support the family, something that she really emphasized on being practical so that uh, hopefully I would one day be able to help my brother and sister go to college as well. So it it was kind of a, I guess, different childhood than I guess what most people are kind of used to. I was like doing insurance Claims at thirteen, and I didn't even really know how to completely read some of the language, but it was a challenge nonetheless. And I'm glad that I was able to have some of those experiences.
0: How did that experience influence the type of career that you decided to follow?
1: With every high school student, it's kind of really hard to make like a split second decision on like you know what the rest of your life is gonna be. I look through a lot of different things because everything I learned about it, I'm suddenly interested in. But in terms of practicality, my dad was always like, you should find a job that has a license because you'll always be able to get a job. So, you know, part of me did want to go into like pre-med and things like that, but I knew just from an economic perspective, I wasn't going to be able to help my brother and my sister get into college and help them pay any of their expenses or anything like that going into that route. So fortunately or unfortunately, I went into nursing. It was kind of a field that would always be in demand, I was told. Didn't really know what nursing exactly entailed, but really, really actually enjoyed it. I went to Rutgers York, for my undergraduate degree, which I later found out is the most diverse campus in the United States. And I really benefited from that. All my friends, my roommates, they were all from very, very diverse cultures, taught me a lot about how many, many different people see the world in such different ways. And I ended up even minoring in gender studies there as well. And then from there, I kind of discovered more about different fields. Specifically, I got really interested in psych because my mom had so many kind of psychiatric things going on um, in her life. I wanted to be able to help her one day. But at the same time, I was like, oh, you know, if I go in there, would I really get a good, solid paying job? So I kind of went into the emergency department for a bit and actually discovered that a lot of our cases in the emergency department are related to psych. gunshots, um, all the traumas, the overdoses, there's a lot of underlying psych conditions that kind of cause these other conditions to kind of emerge. So that's kind of how I ended up shifting. I I saw too much of that. And it it kind of really hurt to see a community kind of being devastated by all these underlying um, illnesses and disorders that if it's true preventative medicine, this is where it could happen. I think I could really make a big difference in the psych realm.
0: So you described growing up in a family where you had a, a caregiver, your mother, who was experiencing mental health challenges. Was she in the back of your mind as you were pursuing psych and mental health nursing? What were you hoping to do for her?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think just growing up in the Asian culture, family is such an important part, better or worse. I think of culture sometimes as a culmination of traumas, but also re- you know instances of resilience in a way. And that kind of gets passed down from one generation to another. So I think a part of resilience was really having a close family tie with my family. And so what I hope to do for her was hopefully find a way to help her manage some of the stresses that caused her depression. She's not a really big believer in pharmacological interventions. And so trying to find a way to be able to help her without the traditional medicines that are available in the United States um, is kind of a big concern, especially with all the health care disparities. Even finding a doctor that spoke our language, which was Cantonese, um, it's a very specific dialect of Chinese, um, is very, very difficult. And can you imagine just trying to find it in a place where half the city is farms, other half is just kind of a suburban area, a majority white high school I think maybe our school was maybe like 5%, 10% Asian, a very low ratio of us. So there's not really a lot of resources allocated. So I wanted to be a provider that would be able to help kind of serve these underserved populations.
0: You mentioned the practicality of going into the nursing field, that it was a licensed profession and something that, you know, you saw immediately uh, you'd be able to earn an income to support your family. That was one of your major objectives. But nursing in the United States, it remains a profession that's dominated by white women, not, not men and not Asian American men. So was that ever an issue for you?
1: Yes, it actually was a huge issue for me, even applying for nursing school. my mom was like, you know, out of all the things you apply for, nursing, really? And it was kind of this idea of just, why would you go into nursing? You're a man. Like, there's so many other jobs you could be doing, like, you know, engineering or finance. Why don't you go into business or something like that? As much as every one, I believe, in 10 um, nurses are men, the numbers are growing, but that's what a couple of years ago, that was what the statistics were. I saw it kind of as an advantage, you know, because different people offer different perspectives. And I think having a male nurse being able to kind of contribute to the co- the larger conversation of what nursing is, is important. There's a lot of things that maybe our lived experiences are different from our female counterparts. And I was really fortunate to be able to find an organization during my undergrad called the American Assembly of Men in Nursing, which kind of ties together a bunch of uh, male practicing nurses some of our struggles, some of our triumphs, and what we really offer to the nursing table, I think it's really, really important. To one day hopefully get, you know, 50-50 kind of split even between the nursing population, I think is ideal, because we really should be kind of reflecting the patient population which we serve. I think that's really, really important to be able to kind of build that bond, that relationship, and that rapport to kind of really reflect that population.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, there is evidence that health outcomes improve when the health workforce reflects the community, uh, including the diversity, the ethnic and racial diversity of the community. Absolutely. Therefore, you know, very strong argument for diversifying the nursing workforce. You are Asian American male pursuing advanced practice nursing. When you finish, you will be helping fill that void that all these uh, studies and reports have been uh, saying, yeah, are, are really important. Given that, you would assume or you would think that there is a lot of support out there for people like yourself, including in the classroom, in the learning environment. But I imagine that it's not all a bed of roses. So if you could tell us, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced along your journey and how you've been able to overcome
1: them? I have come to a lot of those obstacles. For example, In one instance, I remember in my undergraduate degree, um, my maternity clinical, it was kind of really hard to get good experience there because one of the obstacles I ran into was having to ask the patients, is it okay if a male nursing student's in here while you give birth? And I feel like It's hard to not be able to really experience a whole field of nursing that you're missing because what if I really did enjoy maternity? I don't know. But just based off the discrimination of my gender, it was already such a challenge. And what I kind of did to overcome that, I think, was really speaking to some of the other men in nursing in the AMN who, you know, they were actually practicing male midwives. And I thought that was, like, fascinating that through triumphing some of these tribulations uh, that it is possible to get there if you're really, really interested and devoted to the field. But just really finding communities within and, uh, you know, throughout the profession, because there's a lot of obituary and doctors as well that are male. And so just finding these key people in these communities um, really helps me understand, like, hey, this is something that, is gonna be something you face, but whether or not you want to subdue yourself to these situations or really kind of take it on as a challenge is really up to you. And
0: beyond your gender, were there other aspects of your identity, for example, your ethnic identity, that proved to be a challenge?
1: Yes, my ethnic identity, my sexual identity, um, I do identify as gay. So that adds on to another, I guess, tag in terms of intersectionality. There have been times where patients kind of turn me away for being Asian and I get really, really confused sometimes because I'm providing the same, if not better care than, you know, this other nurse, the other nurses. But I also guess I have to understand that it's not about me. It might be about them. They might have some kind of underlying trauma that has caused this racism or caused this you know homophobia or caused a certain thing if they're willing to talk about it then education is the best thing that we can do for them but if they have severe underlying trauma it's not my place to exactly tackle that if they're here not for that reason so i think it, there's appropriate times in which education is really important and there's certain times where maybe the patient or the person or whatever i'm whoever i'm working with maybe they're not ready for that conversation. And I think it's important to meet them where they are, if possible, or otherwise explain what kind of resources we do have at that moment.
0: How do you develop that level of, you know, thick skin um, to, to be able to let it just bounce off you? I mean, I think, uh, I, I you know, I don't know if I would be able to do that.
1: I did a lot of training, actually, in undergrad in my gender um, studies minor with the Trevor Project, actually. It's a nonprofit organization focused on basically crisis interventions for suicidal or self-harming LGBTQ youth. And so one of the really important kind of lessons we learned there was understanding how identity affects how we perceive the world. For example, being gay and being gay and Black or being gay and Asian, completely, completely different perspectives. And we have to acknowledge that, you know, where they are might not line up with where we are. And that we might have very, very different perspectives. So it's really important to kind of dive into how they see the world and try to make sense of what's going on there so that they can receive the care they need. And also to what matters to them most, kind of have that be the center of the conversation.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Pak. And we will be right back. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. You can learn more about this unique program that provides support for psychiatric and mental health nurses from underrepresented backgrounds pursuing their master's and doctoral degrees and how to apply at emfp.org or email us at mfpana.org. Welcome back, Pac. And for this part of our podcast, we are going to try and lighten it up just a little bit. So these questions, I'm hoping for really short answers and tweet-sized bites if possible. So starting it off, who is your nursing hero and why?
1: I would have to say Dr. Susan Kaplan. She is one of my mentors in undergrad. I did a lot of research with her. I think she was the one who really uh, kind of sparked my interest in research and innovation, and that it doesn't always have to be a pill or a straightforward kind of intervention. Um, Me and her did research in the Dominican Republic and it was absolutely fascinating. We piloted an app that kind of delivered therapy to uh, a lot of underserved communities who were very afraid of the stigma of mental health help. And so it's just like, I never thought about using technology to avoid stigma. That's so interesting. And that's where I kind of really went down a spiral of finding all these cool ways of uh, presenting mental health help that I hopefully will be able to implement into my own practice one day, you know?
0: Name one or two perceptions of nursing that got shattered after you entered the nursing workforce.
1: I think one of the biggest fears I had I was shattered as that I have to do med surge nursing before anything else. That was kind of drilled into our head in undergrad where it's just like, oh, you must do med surge in order to have a solid foundation in, in the nursing field and understand how nursing works. I think the beauty of what nursing is, is that it's so multifaceted. You could get the degree, but you could do whatever you want with it. You can put one word and then put another word together. And I mean, with nursing, um, and it would be a career like engineer nurse. You can work with, you know, building hospitals and making it friendly to communities. For example, they built like this giant circular kind of maternity ward um, in North Jersey, where it kind of encourages women. Who are pregnant to walk in that circle to prevent blood clots from forming? Only a nurse could think of something like this because if you if you were to you know put two people together that didn't really have healthcare knowledge or engineering knowledge, this would never really kind of come together. Some of these like thoughtful processes that really make nursing such a cool profession. You got you know nurse inventors, you got um, nurse pharmacologists, you got nurse therapists. Like it's just such a cool, cool field.
0: Great! I'm glad that you are enjoying what you thought was just a practical, uh, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> practical decision in terms of your career. And your favorite course in nursing?
1: Psych. It has to be psych. I don't know why. I just didn't jump to psych. I think it might have been because my family kind of stigmatized psych so much. Just like, oh, you'll be working with crazy people. In fact, it's so much more than um, what the general community might have um, an image of. I think I know we see like a lot of psych wards, asylums. Um, You know, on television and media. But I remember being in clinical, it was a child psychiatric inpatient floor, and we were doing groups. And this one, this one kid would just start crying. And the other one just reached over on the shoulder and told the kid, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. We'll get better together. And I was just like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I just kind of lost it. And everyone's just kind of staring at me like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, this is just really beautiful. And I'm glad that everyone's like so supportive of each other. So I think what we see with all the sedatives like on TV, all the electroconvulsive therapy can actually be very detrimental towards people who actually do need psychiatric help and to really understand what it can really look like in real time. I think could really be a game changer for tackling the stigma that we've developed.
0: Have you been able to convince your family that it's not just about, you know, crazy, mad people that need to be chained up? Or...
1: It only took 26 years, but I finally convinced my mom that she, in fact, does have a mental illness that is manageable through many lifestyle modifications, a lot of good sleeping habits, good exercise, good diet. There's so much that can be done to improve mental health just beyond a pill, even though, you know, sometimes that is what is necessary. I think really evaluating the person of where they are at that current moment um, is one of the most important things and most beautiful things about psych. It's a really holistic picture. It's not always black and white. It's very, very gray. And where we can intervene to educate, to help, um, and to really support is just such an important process of nursing.
0: So America continues to welcome refugees and immigrants from around the world. Uh, We see that happening on the southern border. We see that happening with, you know, people fleeing from war. If you were invited to speak to or address families newly arrived on these shores, so families who might not speak English um, and, you know, might find themselves settling into a community like you did where they might be, you know, the one family from that background uh, for miles around, what advice would you give them?
1: I think one of the most important things I kind of really wish that I had as a child is a really, really strong community or a sense of community, um, whether it be with your own race, ethnic kind of background or cultural backgrounds, or just a community that kind of shares the same values and understands what it's like to be you know, marginalized or different. I think being able to at least find those kind of people that have the similar mindset makes things very much a lot easier to kind of process what it's like like you know growing up I knew I was gay but I could never come out as gay I waited until I was like very much in college it was when I came out but having a lot of friends who were very unconventional thinkers friends of very different backgrounds One of my best friends growing up was Sri Lankan. She had no Sri Lankan friends. So we kind of both understood what it was like to be different. We kind of be this, I guess, outcast in a way, very different from the mainstream. And so, you know, coming out to her was very, very easy to do because we had this, you know, mutual understanding of we were both very different and this is what it's like to be different. So what I would say is really surround yourselves with like-minded people in that sense. And I think that's where these communities can form. And I think that's what America is. You know, it's a community of very, very different people. And it's just a matter of finding the right people in that group can really help you pursue whatever you would like to do in life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Community is so important.
1: If those people aren't available readily from, you know, your parents' connections, your, your the community of your parents, I think something that's really essential in my career development, academic development, and personal development is finding a mentor. It's so, so, so important because they're the ones who kind of look out for you. They kind of tell you, oh, have you considered this? Have you considered that? When you really, you haven't even thought about any of that. I actually got connected to the MFP program through Dr. Susan Kaplan, who isn't part of any, you know, minority groups in terms of like ethnic cultural um, backgrounds. She's a Jewish white woman who um, went to Yale. So did I really identify with any of those specific identities with her? Not really. But the fact that she was a very forward thinker, very innovative thinker, it drew me directly to her when I had her in one of my classes. And I was just like, "I, I need to talk to you. I think you need to be my mentor. And so Sometimes it does take a little courage to, you know, really put your foot out there. But the amount of resources just even around you, your professors, your teachers, your coaches, your deans, your administration, they can be such valuable, valuable resources that can offer such great insight. Uh,
0: that's uh, good that you were able to be so forthright and... and uh pursued what you thought would be a good opportunity. A chosen seem not family,
1: absolutely. That's something I learned um, being uh, part of uh, the LGBT community. Um, it's, it's kind of this idea where you have your biological family, but also this family that you choose amongst your peers, amongst the other adults in your life and amongst the people who are growing up that you can kind of tell them like, oh, hey, I had this experience too." totally kind of understand what you're going through. And, you know, trust me, things can work out in this aspect and this aspect. So, you know, both being a mentor and also getting mentored is part of the community building process, I would say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an important skill to be able to be so intentional in Seeking and acquiring your allies, your um, your community. Uh, I think that's an important skill to learn.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As you move forward in your studies and your career, what do you do, what do you see as your dream position your your dream role as a as a nurse scientist? Like, what would make all of this hard work, all of this networking, all of this uh, uh, you know, all the battles that you've had to overcome, what would make it worth it?
1: It's funny you say that because I think if you asked me like half a year ago, I really would have a lot of difficulty answering that question. But as of like about maybe two months ago, I think a lot of things just miraculously fell into place. So I'm going to be doing a residency, most likely focused on specifically uh, psychedelic sciences and therapy, end of life care. And you might kind of be wondering like, you know, how does everything in your life kind of accumulate to this? And it's like really, really strange because I was able to witness a lot of -of end-of-life care, a lot of psych patients in the emergency department and how the quality of life is something that's so overlooked, yet so important and it can't always just be changed with the magic of a a single pill or anything like that. I look back to all my culture and how we don't really believe in a lot of medications sometimes and that we stigmatize things like talking about your feelings especially to your parents or just kind of suppressing all this emotion. And so now I'm kind of looking into the psychedelic science where it allows people to kind of have an altered sense of consciousness and they explore ideas through these experiences that really help process a lot of these things and People have been doing this since, you know, antiquity, Um, you know, things like psilocybin, uh, peyote, ayahuasca. This has been part of so many cultures for so long as a means of kind of healing, community building, ritualization. This is, you know, believe it or not, mental health. It is. It's just not the traditional mental health that we've seen in the past. And now it's kind of surging back into the mainstream where, you know, psilocybin, MDMA, and uh, ketamine, uh, the first two are now in phase three trials. So they are most likely going to get legalized soon for general practical use of the treatment of PTSD and depression. Ketamine's always been an off-label use for depression and they've shown to possibly be curative in a lot of senses because of all the neurogenesis and aptogenesis and, you know, increasing the neuroplasticity in the brain, allowing the brain to heal from these traumas that we say we can't see but do exist in our brain. So being able to kind of heal whole communities with these practices that we've had all along, but kind of were disregarded due to like Western egocentrism, I think could be like such a cool, cool thing to do. And that's where my journey is right now. And I hope to be able to kind of pursue this into being able to practice, like, you know, end of life care, psychiatry and help people find meaning in their lives going forward.
0: Well, thank you for that, Pak. You are listening to the MFP's conversation with Pak Chow, master's fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. And when we return, we will be diving further into this colorful world of psychedelics that Pak just mentioned. So stay tuned. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. There is a critical need for students of all underrepresented ethnic backgrounds to pursue graduate degrees in psychiatric mental health nursing. The Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is a federally funded program designed specifically to provide fellowships and mentoring support to students from all underrepresented ethnic backgrounds pursuing master's and doctoral degrees in these fields. Visit emfp.org to learn more and apply. We are with Pak Chow, Master's Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, and we have just started a a very interesting discussion about psychedelics. Um, So, Pak, thank you for for leading us into this theme. You recently led a webinar at the University of Pennsylvania titled A Journey Through the Psychedelic Revival. What happens in psychedelic therapy? Tell Tell me more about that.
1: The uh, series is actually on YouTube now. If you guys Google a a journey through psychedelic revival um, sponsored by UPenn, it does pick up. Me and a couple of colleagues are kind of the emcees to the series. And we talk about the psychedelic experience in terms of what the patient goes through and also um, a little bit about the research going on, barriers to getting access to care, what the training is like. And so uh, I guess a little bit more about that is that it's kind of the way Andrew Penn put it when I was talking to him, he's one of the founding fathers in terms of like uh, the modern theory of it. Um, he wrote a paper with Gene Watson that's available online. But he's saying that this is kind of like, we're kind of flying the plane as we're building it. Um, so it's kind of a really, really exciting time because there is no like official national accreditation or standards right now in terms of how it should be practiced or you know what should be going on in therapy specifically, if this should happen, if that should happen. There's kind of just like a, a community um, that kind of leads it right now.
0: But it's not new. This is something that uh, I guess was researched a little bit, experimented with maybe six decades ago. So why did it not Get to that level of acceptance at that time and, and what's driving the revival now?
1: Let me tell you a little bit about the history. Okay. <laughs> I think it's fascinating because, once again, people have been using psychedelics for the longest, longest, longest time. It's just in cultures that are not the modern Western culture that we think of, from South America to Asia to even parts of Europe and Africa. There's this uh, wonderful documentary called Fantastic Fungi that I don't know if is really popular or not because I've been talking to my psych colleagues and they're like, oh, we watched that. It was great. And I'm like, oh, and then I talk to my other friends. They're like, I don't know what that is. But it talks about the stoned ape theory, where there's this theory that actually human evolution may be a result of psilocybin um, since ancient times. It's a mushroom that grows in many feces types throughout Africa. So this idea of kind of this neurogenesis or brain growth over many, many, many generations as a result of psilocybin could be the explanation behind evolution. Now, that's kind of borders a little bit on conspiracy theory part, so I'm not going to go too far into that. But going back to why it's um, kind of more popularized now, in the 1950s, 1955 specifically, there was two anthropologists that went down to Mexico to kind of investigate some of the culture there, um, the practices, and they were introduced to... um, I believe it was psilocybin by Maria Sabina, who was uh, kind of the village healer. She was the all-knowing of the the village that they were visiting, and they kind of tried this this stew, I believe, that she made, and they had these visions of like connectedness, of healing, of what being oneness with the world, and it was kind of this like mind-boggling experience to them that they brought immediately back to the Americas, specifically, I'm talking the like United States Americas. And it kind of got launched into the mainstream through like Life Magazine. They published it. And suddenly there was all this hype about like, oh, is this like the miracle drug? And that's when they got coined as like, you know, you know, the magic mushroom in terms of what the miracle drug is. Um, and so, you know, suddenly everyone was like taking the magic mushrooms. You know, LSD got launched into, um, I guess, the mainstream as well as like what the sophisticated rich person does nowadays. And so everyone was kind of on these different kind of psychedelics all at once. But the mean, in the meantime, there was also, you know, a war going on. And people would go to war, come back, take psychedelics and be like, no, I'm not going back to war anymore. This is all wrong. Um, and they had all these like kind of realizations about things. And so with the political party at the time, they were kind of very conflicted about like, oh, people are taking psychedelics. One, could this be dangerous? How is this affecting the war effort? How is this affecting the economy? And so they had to really kind of really investigate into it and shut it down. Um, There was, you know, academic research going on at the same time about like, what are the actual effects of it? But it was everything was just kind of halted on the war on drugs. And that's when everything started. You know, there was a medication, I think it was a hypertension medication that showed that it was possibly carcinogenic. And so they stopped that and they kind of looped basically all the drugs together. they were like, okay, stop all the drugs We're going to put this Controlled Substance Act of 1971 in here, and everything um, is going to have a scheduling um, in terms of how dangerous it can be and how addictive things can be. And because there was really no or not enough research, not no research, but not enough research on psychedelics, they classified a lot of them into substance, I mean, into I guess schedule one drugs, which means that it shows no therapeutic benefit and that it was a danger to society. So it kind of got left in there, in that category, and was untouched for a very, very long time until most recently, they were kind of able to do some experimentation with it, go through phase one, two, and three trials. And so now we're kind of in a place where we're gathering more data, we're seeing if it works. And so far, a lot of the research is supportive of psychedelics and being effective in the treatment of a lot of different uh, mental health disorders and so it's a interesting time we live in in terms of you know what does the future of psychiatric mental health look like
0: that's yeah, all extremely fascinating it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how all of this evolves one thing i wanted to ask you is because and this because this is i guess an alternative to the way western psychiatric and mental health care has been practiced but why is it important uh, from your own lived experience to explore these alternatives?
1: I'm really glad you asked that question because I feel like why I kind of got so interested in this was from my clinical experiences. I had my last clinical rotation in Kensington, Philadelphia, which a lot of people don't know about, but it's kind of the fentanyl capital of the East Coast and I think actually of the world because drugs are just so easily accessed in terms of like addictive substances like fentanyl, heroin, you know, meth, And so what this kind of next step really means for people who have these um, substance use disorders or the people even living in that area and can't get out because they can't sell their property because it's so, I guess, undesirable, it gives us more tools in the toolbox. And that's important because there's a lot of drugs right now where if it doesn't work or if it causes a certain side effect, we have to discontinue it. And then we end up escalating to a whole another drug with a whole different side effect profile um, that could really, really be influencing that person's quality of life. And so with the residency that i'm planning to pursue they have a a huge interdisciplinary team they have naturopathic doctors which i didn't even know about until a couple months ago but they kind of focus on acupuncture they focus on herbal medicines they focus on like all these different breathing exercises and they have all these exercises and all these interventions have shown to be helpful in the management of certain um you know mental health disorders and I'm just thinking, you know, why aren't we taught that? Why don't we resort to that first before we start, you know, pushing these pills at all our patients? We don't have all the toolbox um, items. It's like working with a small IKEA like toolbox versus just going into Home Depot and seeing everything on the wall and just really being able to use all those tools to really build whatever you are trying to build, rather than just looking at the very limited set of things that might not be the most useful for you or for the patient at that time. Things like uh, affordability for the patients, um, you know, certain drugs, the designer drugs, very, very, very expensive, like Latuda's. Um, Latuda, Saffiris, super, super expensive. But, you know, things like lithium, super cheap. Does that affect the kind of interventions that a patient can afford based on their health coverage? Absolutely. And that's kind of really unfortunate, that there are drugs that are better for certain conditions uh, that aren't available to them, so they have to get this kind of, you know, uh, suboptimal healthcare. But a lot of these alternate interventions can be very, very affordable and have shown to be, you know, either comparable or possibly even better uh, than some of these other drugs, depending on um, what we're looking at. So just being able to offer as many options to our very, very diverse population is just really important going forward in terms of getting the best health care we can to our people.
0: But, you know, there is an argument that they are illegal because they are dangerous. I mean, if if you uh, potentially, um, you know, people can overdose on them and or you know, here we're talking about improving mental health outcomes. Um you know, if these are not taken or administered in a therapeutic manner, you know, with with the proper guidance, if you will, then it could have the opposite effect. So, I mean, given the risks, is it really worth pursuing?
1: I would really like to defer that question uh, to the psychedelic series that's found on YouTube right now, um, A Journey Through the Psychedelic Revival, because there's an excellent presentation by Ben Malcolm there that explains the psychopharmacology, um, the regular dosings of it, and what exactly are the fatalities involved with psychedelics in terms of specifically psilocybin, which I'm very hopeful for in terms of being able to be the kind of the front runner of the psychedelics. Uh, for treatment, it shows very, very little um, rates of like fatalities. I think it's like really the most danger it comes with is um, what the person does while they're under the influence of psilocybin. I think with overdoses, even it's very, very difficult to like create toxic events in the body unless like a large, large, large amount is consumed. Um, And it's just based on how the pharmacology, so the psychopharmacology works within the brain. But in terms of the other drugs, you know, any substance can be dangerous. If you take a lot of, like, Tylenol, I've seen Tylenol overdoses or ibuprofen overdoses in the emergency department. And so to really find experts who know how to administer these drugs, and good education is really what we need. We don't really need to ban these drugs specifically. I think they have therapeutic benefit, but just understanding how they work and the involvement of, you know, both the medical field as well as like, you know, the cultural fields, where are these drugs from? They've been using it for thousands of years. Why don't we involve them in the conversation um, is yeah. essential to understanding the full potential, the full risks. Um, and where we can use them to really help patients going forward.
0: You bring up an important point that we have to you know, reference the, the indigenous knowledge, the you know, built up, the accumulated knowledge from, you know, in some cases, thousands of years using these substances for therapeutic, for spiritual, for other purposes, uh, with, with positive uh, effects and positive outcomes. So bringing it back to the United States, what do you see is the potential for improving mental health outcomes for what you refer to as the marginalized communities uh, in America?
1: I think it really involves kind of incorporating the different viewpoints of minority populations and different cultures. For example, if you talk about, you know, the diagnosis of schizophrenia, you know, some cultures actually see that as a good thing. Um, it's They, you know, consider it as um, people who are in touch with the divine, who see spirits, um, and that they are actually valued in some cultures. But, you know, really understanding, you know, what uh, mental health is in the United States in the context of all these different cultures, I think, is the next important step in all of this. Mm -hmm. Seeing the value and the strengths of different people rather than just like, oh, because you don't fit into the Western culture idea of good mental health, then we have to medicate you. We have to sedate you. We have to um, you know, do all these different procedures or medications because you don't fit into this frame. Another
0: aspect of all of this is, you know, what happens once these therapies are approved right so you, uh, i was surprised to hear that it might be as soon as you know next year or the, d- the year after mm-hmm. where you know drugs that are commonly known as ecstasy or magic mushrooms you know these are drugs that are in demand for recreational use by certain communities by certain demographics How do we prevent a repeat of what we've seen, for example, with opioids, where manufacturers now take this, see this as an opportunity to um, exploit the addictive nature or, you know, the euphoric nature of these therapies or drugs that they're now producing and, you know, drive the market so that they're making a profit out of it and then lead to the kind of situation that we had with the opioid epidemic?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really, really big fear for just everybody. The idea that, you know, any kind of healing modality can be commercialized and, you know, capitalism is just so, so scary. But I know a lot of organizations right now, while there's no, there's like very little in terms of training on specifically like psilocybin and MDMA. There are programs now that are kind of preparing people to train and administer these um, certain uh, interventions. So, you know, just being able to offer as many options to our very, very diverse population is just really important going forward in terms of getting the best healthcare we can to our people. Yeah,
0: it's a, again, it's a a fascinating subject and I'll be really interested to hear as you move forward with your research, with your career in this area, how it is going, because one of the things that we've heard mentioned in this podcast and, you know, with, uh, Other uh, psychiatric and mental health nurses from you know different uh, cultural backgrounds from diverse cultural backgrounds is the importance of having the research being done by people who resemble or who um, look like the community that's being researched on. And if uh, you know who's doing the research now on these alternatives to Western um, psychiatric uh, healthcare methods, And, you know, are we really getting the appropriate outcomes that would advantage people from diverse backgrounds? So that will be interesting. And what will the role of psychiatric and mental health nurses be in this process?
1: I'm going to refer to that paper again. (laughs) It's just a beautiful paper. But uh, it talks about, you know, ever since Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War, She went over there while there's a lot of soldiers dying in the war. There was even more soldiers dying from uh, death and disease from disease. And so the first thing she did was she took a broom out and cleaned out the whole uh, infirmary. And that saved a lot of people. It's all about hygiene. And so that paper kind of reframes it into um, the idea that psychedelic therapy was always something that was meant for nurses in the sense that, you know, we provide a caring, healing environment that we're able to offer this empathetic and unconditional presence for that person in their time of need. We don't necessarily heal them directly, but it's, our fa- it's the fact that we allow them the ability to heal themselves is what we, you know, mainly do in our field. And that's the kind of the beauty of nursing, as um, all of our, uh, you know, predecessor uh, nursing theorists kind of have gathered together and so being able to be a part of this mental health trailblazing psychedelic team um, is quite the honor um, in terms of being a
0: nurse. And so, so you basically be the, like a guide going, taking the patient or the person who's undergoing this therapy on their journey.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Fascinating.
0: Turning now to your experience with the Minority Fellowship Program, you already told me how you found out about the program, but tell me, how is it going so far? Has it met your expectations?
1: I think it very much has. I think one of the the best benefits of being an MFP fellow is having the sense of community amongst you, of all these other um, people in the profession who are really being propelled by their identities and kind of really using that as a very essential part of their academic and career development. And it's kind of really inspirational because, you know, a lot of times in life, you might feel like your identity is a burden to you, but in fact, it's what makes you special and allows you to see this world in a whole different way. So being able to kind of see how other people face adversity, uh, you know, trials, tribulations, all these unique obstacles in their life is really, really gratifying in terms of validating some of the owned experiences I've had. Having these mentors that I talk about, you know, and how they can guide you to do whatever you want to do in life is just so important. So I'm, I'm really grateful for being part of this community. Very grateful for being able to meet you as well and also convey some of these thoughts to my fellow uh, MFP fellows as well.
0: Well, thank you for being open to share with us. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to the fellows. <laughs> <laughs> I always learn a great deal. Um, you know, for for me, it's every episode and uh, every time I speak to to you guys, it's a lo- a huge learning curve. So it's wonderful to be able to absorb all of this. Do you see yourself becoming a nurse educator? <laughs>
1: Um, One day. I think that's one of my goals eventually. I do kind of want to get a PhD and do research. But right now, I think in my current state where I'm just finishing school and, you know, eager to be practicing and learning about uh, all these different interventions like psychedelics, that it's going to take me a bit. I've always liked teaching. I've always loved precepting. But to be able to get there, I think would be paying it forward to the next generation because I was so fortunate to have so many brilliant minds in my life uh, to kind of give me a little guidance. So I hope to be able to get to that role one day. I do.
0: Very good to hear, Pak. And thank you very much for sharing all of your insights with us today. And I wish you the best of luck as you continue your journey as a trailblazing nurse scientist.
1: All right. Thank you so much. And that does it for
0: this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers. Psychiatric nurses speak up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.